If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 1. John's gospel is written with the intent of having a universal acceptance. It is in John that we read that verse we're all familiar with, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. John is a beloved disciple. John lived many years near to Jesus Christ. Here in his eyewitness account, particularly in John chapter 1, he is laying some incredible theological groundwork. In the first chapter of John, he is intentional about establishing the deity and eternality of Jesus Christ. Those are big terms. But it's a fact that he's communicating. He is also validating Jesus as the Messiah by introducing us to John the Baptist, who is the forerunner, the messenger, the witness for Jesus Christ, who was prophesied in the Old Testament. There is much that goes on in this chapter. I think all of it centers around introducing Jesus Christ. We are theologically introduced to Jesus Christ's deity and eternality. We are introduced to the introducer of Jesus Christ in John the Baptist. We are introduced to Jesus Christ and some of his disciples and all of the interaction surrounding this chapter is about introductions. I want to begin by reading in verse 6. We're talking about John the Baptist as we read these words. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. We're introduced to John the Baptist with this phrase, and this has to resonate with us. There was a man sent from God. It is a fact that John had a divine purpose. His call, his drive in life was not of human origin, it was of divine origin. He was sent to be a forerunner from Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi said this in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. Malachi is prophesying of John the Baptist. In essence, Malachi is establishing... The reality of Jesus as Messiah by declaring you'll know it's him when you see a forerunner. Now whether or not this is the forerunner of which Malachi was prophesying is clarified when Luke says this in Luke 7.27 in his gospel. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before thy face which shall prepare thy way before thee. Make no mistake about it. God's messenger is John the Baptist. He was prophesied, and now by John chapter 1, he is on the scene. He is speaking. He has zeal. He has passion. He has drive. And his job is to introduce Jesus Christ. The word witness is used of John the Baptist more than anyone in the New Testament save Jesus Christ. 
In fact, it's a key word all through John chapter 1 over and again he is called a witness, a record bearer of Jesus Christ. His job is to introduce Jesus. His job is to proclaim, get ready, the king is coming. Who is this king? It is Jesus. Jesus is introduced to us in several ways, two of which we'll encounter right now. One, he is introduced to us as the light. The light that pierces the darkness. That's a name for Jesus. Not only is he introduced as a light, John will specifically introduce him as the Lamb of God. He says this in verse 29, the next day, John, that is John the Baptist, seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now, he is the introducer, he is the forerunner, he is the messenger, he is the witness, and he looks at Jesus, points at Jesus, and said, that's him. He is on scene. He is here. That is the Lamb of God that has come to take away the sin of the world. Now where we find ourselves this morning, and I want to spend just a few minutes, is just past this backstory. John the Baptist, and we could spend time, though we don't have it, on his background. We could witness his ministry, which is staggering. People are coming in throngs to hear this wild man which would be a description he would receive, preaching repentance and preaching that the Messiah is on scene. And in a very real, practical, tangible way, John is literally pointing at Jesus and saying, that's him, that's the one I'm preaching about. Now there is a moment in time where two disciples of John the Baptist are standing near him. It's of God's sovereignty and of God's perfect design and plan. They're standing near John the Baptist when Jesus comes on scene. And we'll pick up in verse 35. Again, the next day after John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God! Exclamation point. And the two disciples heard him speak. And they followed Jesus. Now I've taken a little time to labor through that John is the introducer of Jesus Christ. He is a messenger. He is a witness. He is there for us. John the Beloved is declaring unto us the eternality, the deity of Jesus Christ. High realities, theological ideals. John is on scene introducing Jesus as the Messiah, the light that pierces the darkness. He is the Lamb of God that is here to take away the sins of the world. He's proclaiming that to a world in desperate need of repentance. And then with specificity, he has two men standing next to him. He looks at Jesus and says, that's the one, that's the Lamb of God. And these two disciples, hearing John say that, leave John's side and begin to follow Jesus. And we can picture Jesus walking, two disciples now following him. Jesus takes note of the fact that two new disciples are now near him. Jesus, verse 38 says in the beginning of the verse, turned and saw them following and saith unto them, what seek ye? That's a pointed question. What are you after? What are you looking for? 
Are you looking for a revolutionary to overthrow Roman government? You better go align yourself with the zealots. You could understand Jesus to be asking them perhaps something deeper than they were thinking in the moment. What is it that you are really seeking? Why is it that you have decided to leave John and to follow me? Jesus is probing their hearts. Jesus is asking for something down on the inside of them to be settled. He was aware that people followed him for the wrong reason. That still happens. Jesus was addressing a crowd in John chapter 6 and verse 26. He addresses that there are some there that are following him only for temporary physical relief. He says, Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me, not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat of the loaves and were filled. I know that you're following me because I fed you with bread. I know that you're following me, and forgive me, I don't mean to sound light or crass. You see me merely as a meal ticket. Jesus sees the hearts of men. He's driving these two disciples to answer him. What is it that you are really looking for when you follow me? When you left John the Baptist's side and you made the decision to walk behind me, what is it that you were actually looking for? I think it is intriguing. I think these two disciples are simple-minded like I am. Because they answer Jesus in verse 38, and it says, They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, where dwellest thou? They look at Jesus, and in response to Jesus' question, what are you seeking? They say, we want to know where you live. Isn't that a strange curiosity? How many of you are curious about where and how other people live? Are there any weirdos like me in here? Just me? You know you look at other people and you think to yourself, what is their home actually like? I'll say to my wife sometimes, we'll see people in public and I'll think to myself, I guarantee you I could not sleep at their house. I know I could not eat at their house. I look at people in this room and we all show people what we want them to see. We're good at facades. I see your marriage and you're showing what you want us to see, but I wonder what's it really like? When you get home this afternoon, what are the dynamics of your home? What does your house look like? I'm going to drive by all hours of the night and just look and see. I know people are curious about that stuff. I know you weirdos want to know what my home life's like. I'm a pastor. We get that. That's why I keep a loaded shotgun in my room. (laughs) What's it really like? It would seem like these disciples are merely inquiring, can we see where you're staying? Now grasp this. Jesus will tell some followers later down the line, Birds of the air have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus had nothing magnificent to show them. What is being communicated here, more than simply wanting Jesus' address, they're basically asking him, you tell us what you're all about. And in response, Jesus says this in verse 39. He saith unto them these three words, come and see. Now, I believe every pastor is allowed to use corny humor. It's a right that we have. And I think it's possible for us to even have corny applications at times. 
But I could say to you on Open House Sunday, when Jesus said to these two disciples who have asked him, where do you live? And Jesus says, come and see. Jesus was inviting these two disciples, would-be followers, to an open house. And when they came to the open house that Jesus invited them to, what is it that they saw? I wish that the Bible recorded the lengthy conversation for us. Verse 39b says, they came, these two disciples, and saw where he dwelt. And abode with him, they dwelt with him, they lived with him, they conversed with him. That day, for it was about the tenth hour. This conversation is not recorded within scripture for us. But in the context of John chapter 1, I can tell you what these two disciples saw when they went to Jesus' open house. The first thing I know is this, they were introduced to salvation. Verse 4 of John 1 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word life is used 36 times in the Gospel of John. It's an emphasis. Not merely the life that we live, but life in Christ. New life in Christ. They were introduced to Jesus as he was. Verse 5 said, The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. When these two disciples arrived at Jesus' temporary dwelling place, they were confronted with this moment, with this decision. Are you who you say you are or not? Are you who John the Baptist declares you to be or not? This is God in the flesh. They were having conversations with the creator of the universe. The world around them had largely rejected him. But they're getting this time. In fact, verse 10 says he was in the world. And the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But get this. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. What is being communicated by John, the beloved disciple, is this. Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the sent and promised Messiah. He is the light of the world that pierces the darkness. In him is eternal life and only in him. He is the Lamb of God, which is here to take away the sins of the whole world. And the community at large and the religious establishment had rejected that. And now these two disciples are sitting one-on-one with God in the flesh and they had to make a decision. To believe on his name. To believe that Jesus was who he said he was or not. Jesus, in speaking with Nicodemus, will confront something similar in John 3. It's in John 3 that we encounter those verses we know. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. Can I say to you quite simply, academically, elementary, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. 
I don't mean your idea of Jesus. I mean the Jesus of the Holy Scripture. I mean the Jesus of John chapter 1. You must believe that Jesus is who he said he was, which is the sent and promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. And if you are going to accept that Jesus is who he said he was, then that means you must confront yourself as you are, and that is lost in sin without him. You must accept that Jesus is the light that pierces the darkness, that he is the lamb that came to take away the sin of the world, that he is the Jesus that died and shed his blood on the cross as substitute for your sin and death. In him and only in him is salvation. When Jesus had an open house, these two disciples came and they encountered salvation. And they had to make a decision. Do we believe it or do we not? They bought in. They believed it. But I note something else. When you encounter Jesus, when you go to his open house, not only do you meet salvation, you'll meet surrender. Verse 40 of John 1. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now we're kind of going back in our story, even though it doesn't happen until verse 40. What we've just been led in on by John, the beloved disciple, is that one of those two that was standing near John the Baptist is actually Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Verse 41, he first, Andrew, first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, we have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Very basic, very fundamental. Andrew had a new drive in life. Indicated in this is Andrew buys it. He knows that Jesus is who he said he was. Andrew has salvation. And now that he has attained salvation, he has a new drive in his life. He cannot contain the peace and joy, cannot deny the purpose that rises up within him. He immediately goes and finds Simon Peter, and he brings Peter unto Jesus. And it's here in this moment that we see the surrender that I think every encounter with Jesus mandates. Peter is a rough and tumble fisherman. In fact, and we'll touch on this point in a bit, about seven of the 12 disciples were fishermen. That is instruction. Peter comes to where Jesus is. Jesus, I think this is precious, in verse 42, Andrew brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, The word beheld there means it's a concentrated, it's an intent gaze. We don't have insight into the inner monologue of Jesus. What we do know is that Jesus is omniscient. That Jesus is not bound by time. That Jesus knows everything about Peter. That he knows all about his past. That he knows about him standing there. And he knows all about his future. And with that intent gaze, Jesus knew that one day would come and Peter would step out of the boat and make an attempt to walk on water. He knew that Peter was impetuous, and he knew that one day this Peter would deny him. He also knew that this Peter would be the very voice that preaches the message of the gospel on the day of Pentecost. And Jesus does something striking in this moment. He said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Jesus, in effect, says, I'm going to change your name. You ever read the Bible and try to sound really smart teaching it? Anyone? I call that my life. Just read it, try to sound really smart teaching it. Well, you study this verse out and you think to yourself, okay, all right. I wasn't there, but Jesus intently gazed upon Peter and he said to him, 
you're Simon, the son of Jonah. To which Peter undoubtedly said, right. He said, but from now on, we're going to name you Cephas. You're going to be called Peter. No more Simon, now Peter, or we'll call you Simon Peter. It remains confusing. Cephas, Simon, Simon Peter, Peter. Jesus changed his name. So in trying to sound smart, you grapple with it. There's no instruction in John chapter 1 as to why Jesus changed his name. There's no further instruction really in Matthew 16, 18 that there's a point as to why Jesus changed his name. I want to just be really simple and settle on this. The point here is that Jesus has authority to give you whatever name he wants to give you. The point to me is that Jesus has the the, the authority to determine your destiny and to change anything that he wants to change. And the point and intent is the glory of Christ and not the glory of Peter. Peter was being challenged in this moment to be surrendered to being changed. That's the point. You never encounter Jesus Christ where you do not encounter salvation. And you never encounter Jesus Christ where you do not encounter a mandate to submit and to surrender and to change. I love how one wrote it. We have far too many quote-unquote would-be disciples who make excuses for their personality and their inconsistency. Jesus Christ never offers any excuse for you, nor will he accept any from you. He does offer a radical exchange program called discipleship. If you follow Jesus Christ, you can expect him to clean up your language. You can expect him to harness your temper and make you into the person that the Spirit lives through and evidences himself in the fruit of the Spirit. And oh, by the way, Jesus said to his disciples, follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. The more like Jesus you are, the more you are concerned for the souls of men. Are you willing to follow? Are you willing to change into my image? Are you willing to become like me? When you see Jesus, you see salvation. When you see Jesus, you encounter a mandate to surrender. Listen, if you are here and you are grappling for purpose in life, you find it in Jesus. If you're a teenager who can't figure it out, if you're in your 20s, just starting out. If you're in your 30s, I mean near the finish line, let's be honest. Nothing past the 30s. I've been there. I've been past it. It's all downhill. If you're in your 40s, if you're in your 50s, if you're in your 60s, 70s, and it feels like stuff's behind you, I want to convey to you, you find purpose in Jesus Christ, and the purpose that you find in Jesus Christ is to tell people about Jesus Christ. In verse 43, We read this, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, follow me. Philip, follow me. Follow me over the long haul. You aren't invited to just follow Jesus to see what's going on. When you are invited to follow Jesus, you confront salvation and you confront a mandate to submit and to surrender. Get this. All 12 of the disciples as we know them, all 12 of the apostles were invited by Jesus or someone else to follow Jesus. He said, well, Jesus didn't go 12 for 12. One of them wasn't great. There's a few in here that aren't great too. All of them were invited. Jesus looked at Philip and he said, follow me. And note this, in that moment, Philip confronted salvation and the mandate to surrender. And he did so. 
I think this is intriguing. Philip was confronted to come and see Jesus and then to go and tell. We come full circle back to the question Jesus asked, verse 45. Philip has just been invited to follow Jesus and Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, come and see, come and see. I was wrestling in my mind. I was thinking, all right, if I have to pick one region in our immediate area and we could ask, does anything good come out of, I knew that would be a problem. Inevitably, I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. But I am bred in the Washington, D.C. area. And I thought, all of us could agree, can anything good come out of Washington, D.C.? No. That's what's going on here. Is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? Philip is compelling Nathaniel that he has attained salvation. I know it's him. It's the son of Joseph. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He's the one. He's the promised one. You have to come and see. Now Nathaniel comes somewhat doubting. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? All Philip can do to sell it is to say to him, Come and take a look for yourself. Doesn't argue him into following Christ because, man, very rarely does that work. But I will say this. Philip validated his faith by seeking to share it. And that's the same for us. You validate your faith by seeking to share it. What is the message? What is the impetus? What is the drive for people? Come and see Jesus. That's why there's press on us to be like Jesus. That's why there's press on us to submit and to surrender and to change into his image, to be under the inspiration and the domination of his Holy Spirit so that when people look at us, they see Jesus. Do you recognize that you are the Jesus that a lot of people see? You are his ambassador You are his marketing strategy in this world. Go and tell. Go and tell people to come and see Jesus. That's why I referenced seven of the 12 disciples are fishermen. It's instructional to us. Jesus is about reaching other people. Validate your faith by sharing it with others. You never encounter Jesus where you don't meet salvation first and foremost. Jesus and only Jesus is salvation. And you never encounter Jesus where you don't meet a mandate to submit and to surrender what you're all about. All of us have plans. All of us have ambitions at some level. For some, it's just get out of this room. And maybe I'm just being personal right now. For others, it's I want to retire soon. For some, it's I want to make a life change. I I need to adapt. I've got to figure this out. All of us have ambition on some level. Let me say to you this. If you meet Jesus and live after Jesus, you have to give all of that up. Ambitions, dreams. So I can't dream. I can't have hope. I can't have ambition. What happens is all of your plans, all of your purpose, all of your ambitions become his Become his, aligned with his will. And we validate that faith by seeking to share. It's what we're here for in whatever arena we find ourselves in. 
When John the Baptist told those two disciples, that's him, go and follow him. And Jesus turned and said, what are you looking for? They said, we want to see your house. Where do you live? Come and see. And they spent time with Jesus and they encountered salvation. And when they left the presence of Jesus, all of them had a new drive. And the drive ultimately was surrender to my glory. Peter found it. Philip found it. Nathaniel found it. And the others. Can I say to you quite simply this morning, there is salvation in no other name than Jesus. Every one of us that are here live under the curse of sin. That's why our body aches and breaks including our hearts and our brains and our minds. All of us were born in sin. That's what the scripture tells us. There's none good. There's none righteous. No, not one. And if you're honest and humble enough, you don't really have to look that far back to acknowledge that you are a sinner. In fact, it wouldn't matter if you could live out perfection from this moment forward, which you can't. You still could not erase the stains the sins that you have committed, and those sins, small as they may be, put you at enmity with a holy God. But God's love and mercy and grace is so extensive and so ample that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus. That's who we're meeting in John chapter 1. And Jesus will live his life on this earth sinlessly and then lay his life down, willingly shed his blood, die for us. And what is asked of us is what is asked of these men in John chapter 1. Do you believe? Because if you believe that you are a sinner, and Jesus is who he said he was, he gives you power to become the sons of God. You receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Salvation in no other name but Jesus. Believer, I say this to you, and I'm done. Pointedly, your purpose is to share. Your purpose is to invite others to come and see. And your purpose in life is to live so that when they look at you, they see Jesus. They see the fruit of the Spirit. Open house is not a gimmick. Sure wasn't with Jesus. It was a catalyst for change. Would you please bow your heads with me just one moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.